Hi, and welcome to Mavericks Radio. I'm your host, Christian Roy, and this is a place to be to become your best self, do work you love, and live life on your terms. On this podcast, we speak to Mavericks who inspire us, people who play to their strengths, follow the heart, and do their best to create positive impact. We aim to get the insight and wisdom from their story to give you the clarity, courage, and confidence to carve your own path through life. This week, I speak to Justin Billingsley, the CEO of Publicis Group DAC and CEO for Publicis Email, the global network agency for Mercedes-Benz. When I met Justin, I really wasn't prepared for just how down-to-earth and grounded he really is. He might be a big cheese, but he doesn't act that way, and I was really struck by how truly thoughtful and insightful he is. In this interview, he gives us a hint of what he's reading right now. I'm reading a book on flavour, and if you looked at the stack of books beside my bed, you'd find they're 80% weird non-fiction topics like that. And he shares how he thinks we should prepare for the future. I've got a bunch of 12-year-old boys for whom I need to give them the ability to critically solve problems, to be creative in, in the way they work, because the, the physical, the actual things they know won't be as relevant. So hi Mavericks, welcome to the Mavericks Unlimited podcast. Today we have got a very, very special guest. We've got a friend of mine and Hass's, Mr. Justin Billingsley. Hi Justin, how are you doing? I'm fantastic today. Good to see you and I understand you've been in uh, five countries this week. Only in continental Europe this week. So this week was a, a, a Switzerland, Germany, France, Italy week, so not too bad. Very good, very good. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I today have, uh, I do three jobs. I work in uh, the Publicist Group, which is the third largest uh, advertising and communications and consultancy company in the world. For the group, I run uh, all of our operations in Germany, Switzerland, and Austria mm-hmm. um, as CEO of Dark. I am also the global COO, operating officer for all of our creative design and 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 and, um, and, and influence agencies, uh, like the one we're sitting in now, Saatchi and Saatchi here mm-hmm. in London. And, and lastly, and probably most excitingly, most recently, I'm also the global leader on all the work we do for Daimler, uh, the Mercedes-Benz business. Oh, so it's a new business we won earlier this year. And, and what's really exciting about it is that uh, my job is to build an entirely new agency model for them from scratch. And in doing so, uh, disrupt the rest of the company. And that's that's really my job. I'm, I'm the chief disruption officer in, that. in that respect. So that's, uh, that's what they pay me to do. Brilliant. And for the listeners, I mean, guys, you might be thinking, why are we talking to like a big corporate cheese well justin is is the definition of a maverick as far as we can see so what's the word maverick mean to you i think about a maverick as a positive disruptor as someone who tries to do the right thing and doesn't necessarily pay attention to the norms and expectations and rules in pursuing that right thing and doing the right thing is more important to them than following those expectations and rules. So they're the people that change things. So tell us how that applies to you. I mean, Well, it's interesting you say that I'm a big cheese. I don't think people's natural gravity point for a maverick means they have to be an entrepreneur or they've done a startup or they've written a book or they're on, on stage at right. TED. I mean, I think that I've only ever worked in big companies. Right, I think right. the smallest company I've ever worked with had is this one about 84,000 employees. Every other company has been even bigger than this. Crazy. Yet for 20 whatever years, I've managed to be, a, I think, disruptive, positively disruptive in those big environments. And if those environments don't attract people like me, they simply won't survive. So that publicists can hire me in different jobs 10 years ago, we might talk about them later. Um, and my brief being, please come in and build the agency you always wanted when you were a client. 
they're inviting me to drive change. I, I may not fit the obvious mold of being a maverick because I haven't gone out to do my own thing, but I've always felt like I've been running my own startup inside the safe, safe and well-funded environment of big companies. And I think that's the point, isn't it? Being a maverick is a mindset. It's not about position or anything like that. So, I mean, what is it, you know, in big organizations, it can take a degree of bravery or a degree of courage to like really be the disruptor. So what, what drives you? I like solving problems. When I worked just for Saatchi and Saatchi, we would do this exercise uh, with our then uh, boss, Kevin Roberts, who would help us work out what our, as leaders, one word equity was. What's the one thing that makes you different, better, special? And of course, the natural um, point that people try to get to are things like, I'm the captain or I'm the, <laughs> I'm the, 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 the gemologist or these wonderful fluffy things. And I quite proudly earned and still today have the nickname of being the plumber. Um, Love that. My job is to connect things. My job is to find flow. And I don't mind getting covered in shit while I'm doing it because sometimes that's the price to pay to be a plumber. Right, right, right. And when you need a plumber urgently, you get paid a lot of money. So, so, <laughs> so you know, I, I'm, I'm quite proudly the plumber. And, and being, getting involved, being there live, being engaged, being authentic and not solving the problems from the corner office but with the team. I think is what has marked what we have managed to achieve so far and that's the way I intend to continue to work. Love that, love that. And there's also something there about getting unstuck, isn't there? Sitting here opposite you, you're quite different to how I, I kind of built up this picture in my mind of, you know, suit, not suited and booted, but to see you here in like your Stormtrooper t-shirt and a pair of jeans is just brilliant. And just to let you know, guys, we're actually sat here with our shoes off because this is the way that Justin rolls. I, I don't wear shoes. I, I, it's funny, I was in my Berlin office on um, Friday and I, I was running late and I had to get into a car to get to the airport. I, did, I couldn't find my shoes anywhere because my, <laughs> I, normally, I kick them off under whatever desk I start my day in and I have to look at my diary to see where my shoes still are at the end of the day. So uh, I'll have to remember they're in the corner of this room as I get to the end of this day. At least when you go out the room, you'll go past them. So if you could just summarise for us kind of your journey so far, as it were, kind of up to this kind of... Sure. I'm Australian. In case people can't tell the, with the accent, I, uh, I left 20 years ago, so it's a bit dulled. Um, I've always been a marketer. Uh, I don't know how the 17-year-old me chose marketing. In Australia, unlike in the UK or even in the US, you... you tertiary study is very much a vocational choice. Mm -hmm. I, it's quite scary as I think about it now that the 17-year-old me chose to study marketing. It was a fluke. It turned out I was quite good at it. It turns out I was quite interested in it, which is too is helpful to be in the middle of that Venn diagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, absolutely. Uh, I, I worked for Unilever for a bunch of years in Australia uh, as a management trainee. And then um, what I really needed to do, like all Australians, is to get out. I mean, everyone has, right. wants to get out, whether it's for six weeks or six years, we all get out. We all supposedly also eventually go home. We'll see what happens. Uh, Unilever was scaling back on their, on their uh, expat scheme at the time, so Coke offered me a job, Coca-Cola company. I went to them and they said, we guarantee within two years we'll send you overseas. Great, fantastic, I'm off. And six months in, they offered me my first job, which was in, of all places, New Zealand. <laughs> the, 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 the only place further from the world than I was already in. Could have been Vanuatu or something. It could have been. It, it would probably still be there if it was. Yeah. Uh, so I went to New Zealand for a while and, and that started a decade-long journey with Coke in different parts of the world, mm. in, in Asia, in the US, uh, here in the UK. 
I went from Coke to a global marketing role at, at Nokia, the year that uh, iPhone launched. That was an interesting year to observe God, that company. Yeah, that must have been crazy. Uh, from Nokia, I went to Orange, which at the time was one of the most loved and respected brands in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, sadly, no longer on the high street, but it was a wonderful time to work for such a, a brand-centric organization. And it was from Orange that I was attracted from being a client. So those were, those were all marketing jobs, running yeah. brands, running campaigns, solving marketing problems to switch to agency side uh, about 10 years ago. And um, Usachi and Saatchi said, you know, Justin, instead of moving your family around the world or changing companies to solve new marketing problems, if you're in an agency, the diversity of those problems comes to you. Um, right. And which, which I hadn't considered in that way before. Mm. And so I, I moved to China to run Saatchi and Saatchi in China, which was... Uh, wow. Uh, also the most challenging thing I ever did. I was there for four and a half years. I came back to Europe um, to work here for Saatchi in Europe, then globally. And then uh, as is happening in our industry, a lot of consolidation and, and putting things together. And, and in those consolidations, I've, I've moved to diff be responsible for different parts of our group to where I am now. But uh, so I've, I'm, I'm just about to clock up a, a decade with Publicis. And in that time, I've been blessed with working on some of the most diverse client problems from from cars to nappies to vaccines <laughs> uh, and been in some of the most interesting parts of the world doing it so i can't imagine doing something else yeah, uh, which yeah. is a nice feeling uh, but i also can't really imagine what i'll be doing in two years which is also a nice feeling Amazing. so as long as i can keep those two things then it's a good place to be. I just want to jump back to China because that sounds really interesting. And obviously the Chinese market is, is huge these days. What was, what was it like being in China at that time? I miss it. I miss it. I miss the optimism. I miss the energy. I miss the smell. I was back there a couple of weeks ago and I get re-energized every time I go. I, I, it's where, a, it, where were you in? In Shanghai. In Shanghai. In proper Shanghai. So it was, um, it was wonderful. I mean, I, I, I look back with pride of my time there I look back I also look back with a bit of a shudder to be honest because it was a it was a dangerous decision that I took to go there I mean I, I took on I mean I like to challenge myself with what's the next learning curve what how am I going to stretch what's new about this but in going from being a uh, you know, a client, uh, a marketer at Orange in the UK, you know, in a constrained, safe environment, mm. you know, which is creatively challenging, to going to China, where I knew very little about the culture, yeah. I knew none of the language. So my first time in China, my first time running an advertising agency. Yeah. Uh, and worse than that, probably my first time running an advertising agency like Saatchi, which compared to all the other advertising agencies, is one that's much more driven by... Uh, strength of personality yeah. and had a very strong culture and frankly I was one of the most senior external appointments it, it wasn't an agency at the time that brought in talent from outside right. so it tended to reject transplanted organs because you weren't part of the you hadn't grown up with them kind of thing yeah, so it was sense. three big curves which frankly as I look back now <laughs> really shouldn't have worked um, and, almost did, and almost didn't and almost didn't about 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 nine months so the, the, there's lots of stats about expats in China you're you're either there for nine months mm -hmm. or you're there for four or five years there's yeah. not much in between the, the burnout rate uh, is massive mm -hmm. the marriage failure rate if you go there with a partner is phenomenal there's there's a lot of um, externalities that affect your ability to do well mm -hmm. um, and whether it is the cultural barriers whether it is just the 
the, the, the nature of um, selling and relationship building is just fundamentally different to everything that I'd previously learned. And I got quite sick after about six to nine months there, just from overwork and stress. And it was actually, uh, I, I, had, I had an ulcer. And it was actually um, one of the other um, agency leaders in the group who was there running Leo Burnett, um, a guy named Michael Wood, who's still with us today, he runs all our P&G business who came and saw me and said, listen, Justin, the decision's really simple. You've either got to decide which one is easier, changing China or changing yourself. And uh, it made me go through a period of working out again what my strengths were. Mm. And that, that one of, the, pro- one of, the, one of the, the thing that was withholding me from doing well uh, up until that point and then doing well in China and actually since in agency world was something that I've had, a muscle, a new muscle I had to build, which was... Um, embracing ambiguity. Yeah, I, right. I, I'd, I'd spent 20 years being Unilever, Coke, you know, trained on a lack of ambiguity, the, the right. presence of facts, the presence of resources, the clarity of capability and getting things done. But in our job, I can plan about half my week next week. And tomorrow morning I'll wake up and there'll be some problem that needs solving. And right. in not being worried about that ambiguity, but embracing it and then using it uh, like judo, using the strength of the ambiguity to your advantage, to be the person that can swim in ambiguous circumstances better than anyone else, yeah, yeah. becomes a new skill that's needed. I it's no point it. being smart. There's no point working hard if you can't. And when I look at the failure of people in our in our particular industry, I think it does. It very often comes down to that that you can't be satisfied not knowing exactly who you report to, not knowing exactly what your job is, yeah, and yeah. just making doing the best right thing at a point in time and so that was a muscle i learned quickly in china and we took sachi within two years to be agency of the year two years in a row uh about about three years after i'd been there amazing and it was um uh but they were my best and worst days right right. and probably that's probably why i miss them i i I, I, that's probably a big big reason why i miss it so i want to dive into something right there so i don't have any experience of china personally but you know i'm I'm from India or been, you know, half Indian and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the Asian cultures are quite crazy, let's face it. So I get the ambiguity and the, 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 the fast pace and all that kind of thing. But how did you, that muscle you're talking about, about embracing ambiguity, um, that's easier said than done. So how did, how did it work for you? What did you do? to flex that muscle? It was really about being, for me it was about finding, recalibrating myself in that things aren't black and white. Right. So in China, you, you, hear the, you hear the phrases that negotiation starts after the contract is signed. And, and these things that <laughs> seem like these eternal truths, they are true, they are true. There are aspects of relationship building uh, that I simply had to reprioritize um, dinners and karaoke and lunch and breakfast over working in meetings and presentations and PowerPoint and that, that things would take time and I had to be more patient mm-hmm. and I had to be more choiceful and prioritise and I had to bring people with me. I, I had an extra complicating factor and that was there was, uh, I had quite a bit of friendly fire as well because the the one of the reasons an external was sent to China was yeah, as is commonplace, that there, there were some integrity challenges in the business, mm. and so working out what they were and the root cause of those things and and removing them was an early big challenge, which doesn't make you many friends inside. So, oh, so then getting those connections, finding that team, and I'm very happy to say that so I left five years ago, and almost all of my leadership team are, are the leaders of that agency there today. 
um, uh, which is which is I'm really proud of. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. What was the biggest takeaway from China? Biggest takeaway from China is that um, the 20th century was an aberration, and China is indeed the Middle Kingdom. Uh, my kids all speak Mandarin. Wow. We have a tutor that comes to our house every Sunday since we've been back in China really? that, um, that helps them with their Mandarin. And language is simply one thing, but it's one of those things that makes it an impenetrable place. So if they can help with them, that's good. But what we're seeing is them falling back to their normal place. 13 out of the last 14 centuries, they were the largest economy in the world. It was the last century that was the aberration. They're simply going back to where they belong. All of the fundamental inventions that we rely upon trace their roots back to both Chinese and Middle Eastern invention. Right. And uh, yeah, I have a deep respect for the place and I look forward to heading back one day in some capacity. So let's bring it forward to like today's challenges and all that kind of stuff. What for you, I mean, we're, we're in the age of the, the industry is changing, we're in the age of digital and all that kind of stuff. What for you are like the biggest challenges in kind of digital leadership as it were and what's most important in the age of digital leadership? It's funny because my my wife asked me why I travel so much given that we've got all this wonderful technology. Why yeah, yeah. Are you video conferencing i'm on the road 80 percent of the time uh i'm i'm somewhere else uh because despite all of this technology the only way to tell the health of a client relationship or the health of an agency is to walk into it and smell it Uh, you cannot tell all of these things down phone lines down video lines i actually can't see the technology progressing to a point that you can have what they say in germany a four eyes conversation with someone to really assess where we are and the, the 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 you can smell victory in an agency it's not in the pnl you can you can hear the buzz when ideas are brewing and you can smell despair when something's wrong mm. and you can't see that in any of the normal reporting so i get out i get out there as much as i can so i'm i'm actually relatively low tech i'm a i'm a list maker i'm a i'm a i'm a, a, a drawer mm-hmm. uh, i've tried to, I mean, I, my adoption of technology for things is quite high, and I've tried productivity apps and and and, to, and Todoist and Evernote and things like yep. that, and I still use them in various capacities. But that. but I'm still I still have a discipline of writing today's actions last night and then going to sleep and having some of them already done when I was sleeping, and 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 the and the act of writing is is partially the act of solving. So uh, I'm not going to be the biggest. Um, um, fanboy of, of of applying that. Now, having said that, that's just my personal practice. Yeah. But what I'm running is an agency that's doing the opposite, and that is that we're in a we're in a time when there's two massive forces. One of them is that people's attention is becoming fragmented, and yeah. in our industry, the communications industry, as a result of that, we are defragmenting. Um, you know, our clients are defragmenting their relationships with, with agencies. Mm. So. A lot of small agencies are, are being purchased or integrated or going out of business, and we are getting into more end-to-end solutions. So this, as I mentioned earlier, this Mercedes-Benz appointment earlier this year wasn't to be their creative agency or their data agency or their CRM agency. It was to be their agency, to be their partner to solve right. business problems. And you know, so that you don't have a, a, a PR company that thinks the solution to everything is an event, my job is to solve agnostically their challenges that they face as a business with whatever of this the arsenal of things that the, the group has um, and we're going to see that more and more so there's going to be a real consolidation of effort around um, solving clients problems at, at the highest order possible yeah, to help yeah, yeah. transform their businesses 
So, um, and, and to do that, we're applying technology at a, at a dramatic pace. Yeah. Um, you know, machine learning is replacing a number of roles and needing, meaning upskilling is needed. Yeah. Um, data is informing, it will never be creative, but it's informing creativity more than ever before. Uh, and automation in, in production and dissemination of what we do is, 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 is going very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a fascinating time. But me personally, I'm a low-tech traveler that writes things down. Love it. Um, and yeah. So what does that mean in terms of, those are your personal habits, but in terms of like leading people in this age, as it were, and it's still, we're still all human beings at the end of the day. What, what's the secret of your success, as it were? Uh, knowing my weaknesses and and staffing around them. Um, you know, it's funny. It's this time of year is the is the time we do 360 degree conversations. So I've I've had a couple this week when I was in Germany. I've got some this afternoon here in here in London um, to do to look at all the feedback on my direct reports and and I have too many direct reports. I've got 42 at the moment, which is too many. It's a crazy number. It's too many, but my boss has more, so I can't uh, I can't complain. Okay. Um, okay. Again, but that's the ambiguity. That's the are they really direct yeah, yeah. reports or do we form teams and and let people get on with things? But um, just to go through some of these things where people start reacting to performing really well on this dimension but they're worried about this one it's like if you perform well in every dimension i don't need you i don't need you i don't need the mediocrity of perfectly balanced people the fact that you outperform in that dimension a strength is defined by the weakness a superhero is only a superhero because it has an arch villain with the opposite skills that, right. that defines them as superheroes so i know my skills I also know my, my weaknesses, and I've staffed around me to make up for that. So one plus one equals three. So, uh, you know, and, and because of that, and because I, I have uh, the position I have, I get to pick the best of the talent in the group, particularly on this Mercedes-Benz assignment. And my leadership team is, is phenomenal. I, it's a team of nine of us. We have seven nationalities, five women out of, five women out of nine. And they are the best in each respective capacity that they do, and I am thoroughly enjoying working with them. We don't. Sp- we're all. We're based in four cities between the nine of us. So we're not like we turn up to work and say hi each day, but yep. we're bound together by a common um, journey to have got here because we're the nine people that won the business. We're bound together by common objectives because we know what each other's responsible for and we hold each other to account. We physically spend time together. Probably, we spend physically spend time together four hours a month, definite, and maybe one or two hours here and there if something comes up. But we've taken geography out of the equation of being a high-performing team so far. And, and it's my job to make that remoteness work um, because the hallmark of our, our future will be to not be turning up to these offices. We're going to have yeah, yeah. a liberated, distributed, global uh, team of people that uh, are drawn together around projects no matter where they are in the world based on their skills and interests. And, and then disband it again when the project's done and reband it over something else. So it's all part of that same effort that I'm making to disrupt the norms of the hierarchies and the role descriptions and the jobs that this industry has massive legacy problems with. What I'm hearing there is everyone, you know, I love what you said about staffing around your weaknesses, but if you know your weaknesses, you know what your superpowers are as well. So what are your superpowers and how do you deploy them? Uh, I have... Uh, If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said my superpower, I only had one superpower and that was diligence. I simply worked harder than anyone else. I I, I remember the the 26 year old me wore a t-shirt to work once 
And I, if, thankfully, no one does it here to me because I'd hate to be the other side of this T-shirt. And the T-shirt said on it, um, younger, faster, stronger, and I practice while you sleep. I mean, what kind of person puts that on a T-shirt and then goes to work? It's fine to act like that, but don't say it. Anyway, uh, so I, I would have said diligence, but now, given that I'm getting on in, in age, I think there's three things. The first one is, um, is mental toughness. And that is uh, the ability to maintain resilience in the face of perpetual challenges, because they're not going away. Mm. So the mental toughness to push through uh, on these things and to bring people with you. The second one would be, uh, like we discussed earlier, embracing ambiguity. That, that yeah. it is a positive thing to not know exactly where things fit and what the answer is, that we have to embrace it and, and build the plane on the way down the cliff. Um, and probably uh, the third thing would be uh, simplifying complexity. You know, we, 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 have, we work in very complex systems, we solve very complex problems. Yep. And the ability to enrol the clients and our team in solving them means making it consumable. Making the problem consumable, making the solution consumable and repeatable. And so I, uh, I do focus on uh, ex the, the simple expression of complex things. And, it, I, and I think they are my three, they're my three strengths. Now, each of those has a, an opposing force and that's what I staff against. Um, mm -hmm. to make sure that we, um, that someone is bringing the rigor, that someone is holding my belt as I lean out the window to make sure I don't fall to the street <laughs> below. And, um, and, and that's how we make it work. And would you say those strengths for you are innate or are they skills that you've developed? Two of them are innate. Um, I, think the, I think that the one that I've had to develop was the ambiguity one because I was actually trained to be the opposite for a while. So in corporate world, particularly in an American company and Coke for a decade, yeah, yeah. Uh, ambiguity is not friendly. I mean, you, it, there's no space for that. It's, it's process and rigor. And, and so I had to train myself out of that particular one in order to do well on this side of the fence. And, but the other two, I, I think um, I, 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 had a, I was very lucky to have a great education. Um, in a great egalitarian place like Australia, and I think that, that that helped those muscles. Looking back over your career, 20 years there or thereabouts, what's been the, the greatest challenge you've had to face, and how did you overcome it? The greatest challenge was what we spoke about earlier in China. That was the greatest challenge because there was actually, the stakes were higher. Mm -hmm. The stakes were higher because I'd moved my family to, I had three little kids, they were aged, at the time, four, six, and eight. Yeah. And I'd moved them from London to Shanghai. So it wasn't simply about whether I'd do well in this new company, yeah, but yeah. what have I done? I've raised the stakes. I've moved my family. We've changed them out of lovely schools here in London, moved my wife to, to start a life in a, in a place that was trying to reject me yeah, yeah. and a culture that didn't know they needed what I do well until we had to work out where it all fits. Right. So that was the greatest both personal and professional challenge. And it was tough times. It was not like happy, happy story the whole time. But yeah, yeah. You know, there was there was an arc. There was there was arc one, arc two, and arc three. And I'm glad arc two and arc three happened. But I can also understand how a lot of people don't make it through that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, when I look back, I there was a I had the right moment. The harder you work, the luckier you get. But I had I did have a, a, a bit of luck. But it was tough times to push through. Uh, that but that was definitely. That was definitely the worst and therefore, in hindsight, the richest part because of how much it improved me. It's amazing what is uh, rich in hindsight, isn't it? 
Yes, it's the same way we look back and remember how wonderful all of our, every single one of our holidays were, but at the time you, you remember quite clearly the frustrations <laughs> of everything else that goes on with them. I think it was actually uh, the Swedish philosopher Kierkegaard who said something along the lines of, this is the paraphrase of, you know, we live life forwards, but we understand it backwards. And I think, you know, that, that's very much the case. So just talk, talking about family then, because you said earlier you're on the road 80% of the time, and a lot of our listeners are, you know, founders or entrepreneurs or, you know, they're out doing their own thing. And life is busy. How do you, I hesitate to use the word balance, because I don't think there's such a thing as balance, but how do you integrate your family life and uh, your personal life with a hectic work schedule? Yeah, I think uh, for me, and this has been something I've really had to work on in the last two or three years in particular as my, as my work travel has increased, is uh, when I'm home, I'm present. And I think that people confuse the amount of time with, that you're with your family, that that, is, that that is what makes you a better father or a better husband. But I believe that the presence and quality of the time you spend is, is far more important. I am home every single weekend. Um, and when I'm home, I, I work when everyone's asleep. And when I'm awake, I'm doing stuff with my family, even if it's ferrying the kids around and being the, the taxi as, as you are on the weekends. But I'm present. And therefore, uh, I mean, it's easy for me to say, but I regard myself as a, as a better dad for that presence than simply for being the person that sleeps in the same house as them every single yeah, other yeah. night. I'm, I'm very lucky because I have a wife that, um, that runs the family. Um, mm -hmm. She's the boss and uh, uh, we, we, know what that, we know what that means. I, <laughs> I, I, I do my job, she does, she does her job and make, makes all of this possible. Um, and you know, the, the, the simple equation for me, and it m might oversimplify things, going back to my earlier point, is that you know, satisfaction is performance minus expectations. And mm. I manage expectations particularly low. And the expectations are that I go somewhere to work on Monday morning, I get home from somewhere on Friday night. And if there's a bonus night, like last night I was home on a Thursday night, which is a bonus yeah. uh, that improves satisfaction. So, so yeah, it, it, but, but, but if I'd be in trouble, not if I traveled more, I'd be in trouble if I wasn't present when I'm home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's, that's really what I, what I focus on. So in the middle of all of this, given how crazy busy your schedule is and you've got family at the weekend, how do you take care of yourself? <laughs> not well enough. <laughs> no, and that's the genuine answer. Uh, if there's an area of my life that I, um, it was my birthday last week, and it was an area of my life to reflect upon for the year ahead, is improving my vitality levels and health levels. My, my, I have not had the right um, uh, balance myself in the past year in particular. Yeah. Uh, work has been, the challenges have been greater, so the work has been greater. And it's not that, I, it's, it's, it's all been fun. It's been yeah. busy fun. But sometimes, uh, you know, you just got to you know, stop and sharpen the saw. And I need to make some uh, personal vitality improvements, uh, make time for, for exercise, make time for being outside, uh, and just make a little bit of time for getting that balance back. So, so I'm not, uh, not going to sit here and say that I'm a, I'm a poster child for, uh, for that kind of balance quite yet. But, but, uh, but maybe I, next time we talk. Well, I think, to be honest, I think that's really useful and, and uh, valuable to kind of people listening to this, though, because, you know, I think so many of us uh, struggle with that kind of literally keeping all the balls in the air kind of thing. So as you're looking forward, thinking about kind of health, vitality and that kind of thing, what kind of things do you have in mind that you're going to try and integrate and 
bring those into what is already a very busy life? Uh, sleep is one of them. Right. Uh, it's fascinating. I mean, sleep has been seems to be one of the topics of this year. Totally. So totally. much more. So much more. Uh, knowledge coming out of that area. It's incredible that we know so little about the thing we spend a third of, we're supposed to spend a third of our yeah, lives absolutely. doing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I've never prioritized. It's something, <laughs> thankfully, that I haven't, right there with you. I haven't felt a physical need for, but I don't know how much of that's conditioned need and how yeah, much yeah. that is real. So I think the simple act of being more disciplined about sleeping is probably one of my first steps. Um, then it's about nutrition. Yep. and balancing that and frankly I don't think the solutions are that complicated the solution is much more about mental discipline and if I if I sit down and, and relish solving a client's problem or relish solving our agency's problem I need to change my attitude to solving to solving my vitality right problem right right and make it interesting um, and if I can make it if I can make it uh, if I can make it interesting and, and really enjoy that just as much I'm sure I'll solve it quite quickly but I don't think it's much more complex <laughs> Sleep more, eat better, yeah, yeah, and compartmentalize the stress. And if I can do those things, I think I'm going to be in a much better place pretty quickly. Well, I look forward to seeing seeing you this time next year and seeing where we're at. Obviously, you're in a role where a lot of people look up to you now, but we all have our people that we've looked up to in the past. Who are some of your maverick heroes and why? People I even gravitate towards today. So a big one today is uh, Demis Hasibis, the guy who runs AlphaGo. Uh, the, the, the AI company that was acquired yeah. by Google. He's fascinating because hyper-intelligent, clearly, but his ability to um, make populist, very, very complex things uh, and to be someone in that industry that I actually trust to, being apply, to applying the ethics of what is undoubtedly going to be a part of our world that's going to be ethic, ethically challenged, I right. think is absolutely fascinating. I really hope that he and they continue to do well inside the enormous organisation that is Google. Right. But it seems like they're getting the right the right balance. Um, yeah, Kara Swisher is someone I'm spending a lot of time listening to the the, the Recode Decode reporter yeah, yeah, yeah. now writing for the New York Times again because I think she's interesting because of the job she has right now in holding some of these Silicon Valley platforms to account. She's a very strong voice in that, and I think she's striking the right tone. And I'm I'm enjoying. The constructive approach in what's yeah. become quite She's a polarized amazing. debate. She's amazing. I love amazing. her. Just what a brain. Yeah, yeah. What a brain. Ed Catmull, who's the technology lead at Pixar. Okay. He's the third person that people don't talk about that built that thing. Yeah, but he's the right. one I quite like the most. So John Lasseter was always the storyteller. Steve Jobs was the sponsor. But he was the guy that worked out how he used technology to serve creativity. And, uh, and he's still there. He's still there as president of animation. So... I think uh, he's another another good maverick disrupting things. And there's a long list, but they're three examples. That's th- three, three great examples as well, and three people that not many people would have at the top Look of their list. Look them all up. They've all got at least podcasts, at least TED Talks, and some of them yeah, even yeah, have a book. Yeah. So, Absolutely. But they're, they're worth, uh, worth gravitating. And I'm right there with, with you and Cara Swisher. I think she's amazing. So that was Heroes. What kind of stuff do you fill up on inspiration-wise when it comes to, I don't know, culture... Uh, media, film, music, whatever. First of all, it would be a book before anything else. Right. Physical books still. Yeah. Um, so what are you reading right now? I'm reading a book on flavor. Literally, okay. the book is called Flavor. And it is, it is on the science of how the sense works and the science of uh, making new things that appeal to that sense. And if you looked at the book beside the stack of books beside my bed, you'd find they're 80% 
weird non-fiction topics like that. There's a book there on oysters. There's a book there on the color blue and where it came from. Oh, yeah, and just, I've heard about that. I get, I get interested in going really deep on things that aren't part of my direct life but that you find yourself drawing upon. I'll be referring to something about flavor at some point in the future yeah, because yeah. you just take time to, to detach and, and understand something new. So I'm, I'm, I'm a consumer of diverse nonfiction stuff mm. and then probably uh, military history is, would probably be the second biggest topic. So it's just, um, yeah, that's, that's what stimulates me. Brilliant, brilliant. And Star Wars. Star, well, <laughs> you can't knock Star Wars, and can Lego. you? But Lego Star Wars and books, how's that? Absolutely. Lego is like a huge thing. I coach a couple of CEOs who both, I mean, there's one I coach who literally behind him in his office is like a half a million Legos, I'm sure. I, I, I do make my birthdays very very easy for my children. I got, last weekend, I got, I got Boba Fett Lego, a Boba Fett cutout, a Boba Fett cake, a new Star Wars pajamas. I do make it quite easy for them, so it's nice to be interested in. And I'm sure at some point they'll probably uh, look to nick those from your office or whatever. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, last couple of questions. Uh, if you had a piece of advice to give to a maverick starting out, whatever, whether it was entrepreneurial or whatever, what piece of advice would you give them? I would say you are not an imposter. And which is another topic which is I've thought about for many years and, and, and understood the imposter syndrome. I've caught myself feeling like an imposter at various points because right. I've often had teams of people that have been more experienced and older than me working for me in, in different companies. I have progressed a little faster than others in the various jobs that I've done. And a natural questioning is the imposter syndrome of, am I a fraud? Am I just really good at these things, which is telling stories and, and, and expressing things, and will it all catch up with me? But I, I really now believe it withholds a lot of people from really pursuing what they can pursue, that people think there's a chronological order to how you're meant to move up and through the world, mm, and mm. there isn't. You can disrupt that order massively, and we see that in, in the platforms and the tech startups and people just totally. changing what should be expected of, of you at your age. So I would say to anyone, assume you are not an imposter um, uh, because that, that is a question that, would, that holds people back more than it should. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I think there was a stat as well. I think it might have been in HBR or something like that about 75% of uh, the jobs that kids who are at school today will do when they're growing up don't currently exist. So, I mean... So, I was at, so I'm involved in my, my son goes to a great school here in London. I was... I was there with the, the, um, the headmaster recently and he gave a wonderful speech, which gave me a lot of confidence about the education my son's getting. And the, the nub of it was, he said, listen, we've, it, we've been sent a letter. So normally in, in the, there's movies where, where the aliens give us about an hour's notice before they come to earth and then they blow up all, all the famous landmarks and eventually Will Smith saves us. Yeah. But he said, you know, we're in the middle of an alien invasion, but unlike an alien invasion that's coming tomorrow, the aliens have, have sent us a letter and it says, dear Earth, we're coming. Um, just so you know, we're, we're smarter than you. We're replicable. We're lower cost. We work harder than you. We're coming and we're going to destroy everything you know. We'll be there in about 10 years. So we're giving you time to do something about it. But just so you know, we're coming. And he said, this is exactly how we should look at AI and how we should look at machine learning and the fact that those jobs don't exist. And he says, so if that is true and it's 10 years and really probably it's about five years, 
I've got a bunch of 12-year-old boys for whom I need to give them the ability to critically solve problems, to be creative in, in the way they work, because the, the physical, the actual things they know won't be as relevant in that short period of time mm -hmm. because the aliens are coming. So I just thought it was a very powerful metaphor for what we're yeah, dealing yeah, with. Yeah. I have no idea what my children will do. We'll see. That's the, that's the joy of this age, isn't it? And um, finally, what's, what's next for Justin Billingsley? <laughs> I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now. What's next is, is to spend the next year uh, making this new agency called Publicis Emile, doing all of Daimler's work in, in, in 40 countries. Uh, the best uh, leading edge example of what our industry needs to become. And then I imagine my next job will be to work out how that scales and do everything else that we do. So right now it's still very much in an incubator mode. Um, I've got the best talent, uh, the best technology, and I'm kind of protecting them from the world while we get this working. And when it's working, the job is to scale it. So I, if it's up to me, and mm -hmm. at this stage it is up to me, I, I know pretty much know what I'll be doing, the kind of work I'll be doing for the next few years, and I can't wait. So this was Mavericks Radio. Thanks to Justin Billingsley for being my guest today and for sharing his insights on what it is to be a real maverick in big business. Keep listening for our next episode. Subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people to find us. And with that, I'll see you next time and bye for now. <laughs>